0: Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini.
1: Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be talking with an incredibly talented person with a very inspiring story. It is my honor to welcome Michael Dermer to the show. Michael is an entrepreneur, speaker, lawyer, and the founder and author of The Lonely Entrepreneur, and he is a consultant and coach for startup businesses and entrepreneurs. Michael discovered what would become the Lonely Entrepreneur methodology when his company, in One the first to provide financial rewards for healthy behavior and that he built for over a decade, was nearly destroyed by the financial crisis of 2008. By applying the perspectives of the Lonely Entrepreneur methodology and two years of 20 hour days, Michael was able to revive his company and sell it in 2013. Today, Michael is considered the founder of not only a company, but an industry rewarding individuals for healthy behavior. He graduated from the Northwestern University School of Law and lives in New York City. Michael, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So Michael, let's start uh, by talking about you from the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal background? And I know that a few weeks ago when we were chatting, we established that we both went to Northwestern Law School. I think you were a year ahead of me. So for all I know, we met each other over 25 years ago. <laughs> right. um, what made you decide that law school was where you wanted to start? And what did you do after you went to law school?
0: Well, that's not where I wanted to start. I mean, I wanted to be shortstop for the New York Yankees. It just didn't work out that way. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up in uh, central New Jersey, playing all kinds of sports, resports sports in high school, and then went to Bucknell University on a baseball scholarship and actually played a little basketball there, too. After those dreams of being the next Derek Jeter, kind of went out the window. Believe it or not, my, my dad, who was a very savvy uh, investor relations guy in his career and an old baseball coach of mine that was a Merck strategy guy, said, listen, you know, you're know you going to run your own business someday. He goes, if you don't know what it is, go play corporate lawyer and learn how you know, money moves and deals get done, and you can figure out what you do from there. So I, after Bucknell, went right to Northwestern, where I'm sure we passed in the hallways and the atrium. And, you know, I did uh, mergers and acquisitions for Wilkie Farr and Gallagher in New York City for uh, for three years. And that's how I got started.
1: So how did you like being a practicing lawyer?
0: You know, it's such a different experience when you know you're not going to do it your whole career. Like I was not one of those, you know, New York overworked lawyers that wanted to get out. I was somebody that was, you know, in my mid twenties. And, you know, when you do M&A, you're involved with some of the most interesting transactions out there. um, And I would you know sit in when you're supposed to be reading legal documents i was reading you know business strategy documents at the same time so it was a very different experience you know when those deals happen you know you know you're the only there's only 20 people in the world that know about some of these deals so to be a you know right. 26 or 27 year old you know hanging out with ceos and cfo's and coos even doing the the grunt work of the lawyer uh, was a really interesting experience for me just because of my dad's background and also because i wasn't trying to I didn't have aspirations, for example, to be a partner of the law firm. You mean like me? <laughs> like you, exactly. <laughs> you never thought you'd get a dig for being a partner of a prestigious law firm, right?
1: <laughs> well, I have to tell you, if if you had asked um, the people who knew me in law school who was the least likely to stick it out to be a partner in a law firm, they would have pointed at me. No, no doubt. I mean, I came to law school uh, by way of an engineering degree and had actually started my master's and thought I was going to work at at Motorola doing safety engineering and took the LSAT on a dare and um, did well enough to get into Northwestern. And so I thought it was a sign from God that, you know, I'm supposed to at least go to law school and then figure it out. And here here we are 25 years later and I'm still practicing in, in a large law firm.
0: So, Well, quite an accomplishment.
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So you knew going in that it wasn't going to be forever. What, so along the way, when did you decide, like, how did you figure out when the time was the right time for you to leave and do something different?
0: So I was kind of looking for my entrepreneurial idea. You know, it's not like back then. It wasn't like it is today where everybody's, you know, half, one foot out the door trying to be an entrepreneur, right? Back then, you know, entrepreneurs, when they did it, were it was all about like the idea. And that's what it was for me. You know, my my dad had said to me, hey, do you want to go run my family real estate business? And I didn't want to do that. And so I was just kind of keeping my eyes and ears open. You know, business plans for new businesses and pitch competitions and angel networks didn't exist back then. Right. So I just had my eyes and ears open Um, for things and and we're poking around and talking to interesting people. And I literally just stumbled upon my idea. And for me, you know, I don't even consider myself a serial entrepreneur. It was more about the idea. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't about starting a company. It was about the idea. And I literally stumbled upon uh, and saw a stat that said for every 10 pregnant women that don't follow their prenatal care plan, it cost the healthcare system a million dollars. Wow. And I didn't know anything about healthcare, you know, anything about technology really. And I was like, wow, I was like, so wait a minute. So if you, and you know, and the median family income for a family of four back then might've been, you know, $40,000. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait a minute. So if you went to these 10 women and literally just paid them like $10,000 each to follow what they should be doing anyway, the system would save nine hundred thousand dollars and I was like, something's off here. And then I just started asking around. um, And I just some people that I knew in the medical profession. um, And I asked them and they said, what is this about? Is this true of every condition? They're like, yep. They're like, we pretty much know whether it's heart disease or back pain or asthma, you know, you go down cancer, we pretty much know the behaviors that we want to get people to take. We just can't get them to do it.
1: It's really interesting.
0: And I was like, Wow, there's really something there, and then the idea of of basically you're talking about you know what do, how do people motivate people to, to interact and take behavior? Well, it just loyalty programs just jumped mm-hmm. off the page, and it, it was very clear that everywhere in your life you know had these loyalty programs for flying on an airline and you know staying in a hotel and and but nothing for healthcare, uh, and that was it. You know that was the beginning of the end, and I spent literally in conference rooms at Wilkie Fall, and Gallagher in New York City, where I work in conference rooms at like 10 o'clock at night with me and my brother, just brainstorming and business planning and figuring out what the business would be and what the economic model would be. But to me, it was just about the, the idea. And, and personally, I was not interested in little things. I still to this day aren't. I'm not interested in if we could create a watch and, and you and I could make a billion dollars, mm-hmm. I wouldn't care. To me, it was much more interested in something that had white space, that could help society, that could help people. And obviously, that checked all of those boxes. And so we spent literally six months at midnight a couple of times a week just figuring it out. And then after doing that for about six months, had done enough planning to understand the competition and what was going on in the space. And that was uh, and then left. And that was it. So what year was that? That was uh, the beginning of 1999.
1: Wow. Okay, so you've been practicing while, for yeah. like five or six years at that point.
0: Like, like three and a half years. <laughs> 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 to say I was an M&A lawyer was a little bit of a stretch because I only, only did it for three plus years. So.
1: That's pretty funny. Yeah. So So, and then you founded Insan one at that point, right?
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So what was it like starting the company? Why don't you walk us through the beginning stages of getting it off the ground and some of the trials and tribulations that you encountered as you were starting and building the company?
0: You know, the first experience that's so surreal is leaving a large law firm where you have, you know, the the amenities and you have all that. But to be honest with you, I never really felt that much about that because it was so, this idea was so compelling to me. Um, like a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, they just kind of get it. It becomes like oxygen. And I'd say that there were two things that happened in the early years um, one was, you know, you, you get into something like the healthcare industry and you understand how big and complicated it is. And you still have that one element of, you know, how do you weave your way through this? But then you have the other element of this going, this is just a matter of time, right? Because right. there's too much, there's too much value here. Um, and those are things that for the entrepreneurs in your audience, you battle battled every day. Early on, it was very lean. I mean, think about what we were asking the healthcare industry to do. We were asking the healthcare industry to essentially reward or pay individuals for the things they should be doing anyway. And it was not only did it not exist at that time, it was offensive to them.
1: Well, yeah, explain that. I find that really interesting that you say that it was offensive. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so, so they thought that the pregnant women of the world should, should follow their prenatal care. <laughs> they thought that the mm-hmm. people that are right eating pizza every day and are gonna have a heart attack should do something about it, right? <laughs> and, and the right. idea that that the health insurance plans, for example, or employers, you know, would would actually spend their money to get them to do things um, that they should be doing. Anyone, anyway. it was literally ethically more morally. I mean, how many times that we had people who are like ethics people saying, "Ah, is it right to do this?" And I was like, "We're just in the math business." Right? It's just math. Right. <laughs> uh, like we can we can go and have a, a bourbon and debate the morality of it, but at the end of the day, you know, when somebody owns up ends up in the emergency room. You know, there was another another example that was just so stark to me for any of your listeners that have children that have asthma, you know, there's women across America as moms who rush their children to the emergency room, you know, four times a year with asthma attacks and that costs, you know, fifty thousand dollars to the healthcare system when you could buy a a $200 inhaler. Right. The the examples were just endless. And so, you know, we really got the door slammed in our face hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times by the very same people that ended up becoming our customers. I remember there was a gentleman from waste management, you know, one of the biggest healthcare spends in the country. They got guys on trucks all day long, you know, eating cheeseburgers and smoking. And, (laughs) And he said to me one time, he said, I will never pay our employees to do the things that they should be doing. And then about, it was probably a year and a half later, he called me out of the blue and he said, I'm going to revise my statement. He goes, I'm never going to pay the, the people to take care of their health and doing the things they should be doing. But my guys keep crashing trucks into buildings because they have sleep apnea. So he goes, how does this work? Wow. And that was literally the journey. But that that journey you know, was was over the course of like, like five years from the early 2000s to the mid 2000s, you know, we just were building technology. I mean, there's so many stories I can, entrepreneurial stories I can tell you about um, losing our technology vendor twice. I mean, there's so much of that, but just on the pure business level for five years, we just were building technology and building out the business model and just, just you know, bootstrapping it along the way. And it wasn't really until, you know, oh five oh six that we really started to get traction. So it was a good, good, solid five years of doing that.
1: So, you know, you talk a lot about um, the impact of 2008, the last recession. What I'd like to do is just take a few seconds to talk about as you were heading into 2008, obviously you had a few years under your belt. You had a company I think at that point, you had, what, probably a couple hundred folks working for you at that point? Yep. So why don't you, you know, sort of set the stage for what it was like right before the
0: recession hit? Believe it or not, I did not get a postcard that said the banking system is going to collapse. Um.
1: <laughs> really? You didn't get that postcard? <laughs> I did not. I did not.
0: So from, oh, you know, I mentioned O five, O six 05, 06, to 08, we grew like crazy. The, it had really caught on, you know, they had passed the early parts of, you know, HIPAA and, you know, rewards were something that was in there and, and, you know, it just took off. And we had spent many, many years being the only one talking about this. So by 2008, we had, like you said, we had grown to a pretty sizable company. Um, and I remember being in a boardroom in 2007, we had taken a little venture capital investment at that point. And in 2007 saying, you know, we could sell this thing for a lot right now, you know, cause we're on that upswing and we're like, why would we ever do that? Like we're, now we've quote unquote made it. We've basically created an industry. Right. And you know, I mean, it's like a fashion trend. Like when you, when you first come up with a fashion trend and people don't like it, they think you're a moron. And then later on they call you a visionary. Right. It's just different. Right. Right. And you're so
1: brilliant. Right. <laughs> right,
0: right. I told my private equity guys, like the day before I sold my company, I was a moron. The next day I was brilliant. <laughs> And we were just sitting there and then going into 2008, you know, the, the sky was the limit for us. We were growing. We had clients that continued to grow. The industry had really gotten to know us. We had at that point won Cigna and a bunch of Blue Crosses and had business with Aetna and um, we were, we were off to the races. And in the fall of 2008, literally almost got destroyed overnight. You know, our business literally got cut in half. You know, our, our business model was we were essentially a, a SaaS software model, if you think about, you know, your loyalty program on your credit card, for example, you know, we provided all the technology to do all that and connect all the healthcare behaviors. and We would get license fees from companies and from health plans. And that was our license model. And literally, it was almost a running joke. The companies that were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about not surviving were all of our clients. So my three biggest clients were, at the time, were Washington Mutual, Countrywide Financial, and General Motors. And wow. for any of you that don't know, there's only one of those that still exists today. <laughs> um, and that's right. General Motors and only exists because of a government bailout. So these companies that, that were these large employers that were spending lots of money on on this type of thing, you know, Washington Mutual was bankrupt. Countrywide Financial was near bankrupt almost overnight because of the unraveling of, of all the things that happened when Lehman went down and Bear Stearns went down. And so, as you can imagine, not just them, but pretty much every company in corporate America and certainly the health plans in America. You know, the health plans were all dependent upon these large employers as their main revenue streams. And so this was not like the dot-com bust where over the course of, you know, a year or so, there were 300,000 jobs that were lost in San Francisco.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: This was dramatic, almost instant. You know, we, the, the catchy marketing phrase we use about our book and everything is, you know, what it took us 10 years to build almost got destroyed in 10 days. That was almost literally what happened. Um, because as you can imagine. That's you, pretty
1: scary. You
0: remember it was just, it unraveled so quickly, um, not just for us, but for, for everybody. Right. Big boys and girls stuff.
1: <laughs> so what did you do? you know, so you've got, you know, everybody was scared to death. I mean, I remember, you know, there was, I think the beginning of what has become the third recession during the course of my career. And I mean, you and I are are pretty close in terms of age. And so, but this one was different and you spent, you know, thousands of hours building this business. It was yours. It was your family's. And you're, you're, you're looking at this all unraveling and at one point, I mean, I would imagine that there were a series of, of points that sort of led to the inflection point of being able to turn this around and make it become what you needed it to become. And then we'll talk in a little bit about how you ultimately sold the business. But do you remember there being like a certain pivotal moment as this is all happening where you were able to say, this is the way forward? Were there any moments like that for you?
0: Um, That was probably the hardest part about it um, because the foundations of our economic society were fractured. Um, It wasn't as if, you know, you could look left and look right and decide which way to go. You know, you had to worry about whether the street was going to be there. Right. And that, that was the most difficult part. I remember on several different occasions trying to re forecast revenue and trying to be as ultra conservative as I could possibly be. And I got it wrong almost every time. Because you'd get a call from a customer who looked solid, who would be like, uh, we're having financial problems, you know, like not being able to pay the bills. Remember, that was when like GE came out and said, I don't know if we're going to have enough cash. Right, Right? Right. So not like worried about Joe's pizza stand on the corner. Right. And so that was the most difficult part was there was no end in sight. Um, I don't know what your experience was like taking the bar exam, but I know when I went into the bar exam, you know, part of me, you know, we went to a great law school in Northwestern, almost nobody fails. Right. But there's a part of you going, if they want you to fail, you'll fail. Right, right, <laughs> like, exactly.
1: It, <laughs> it was a terrifying experience. Well, was, I mean, for me, it was terrifying. Like I didn't sleep for three days because I just lived in this fear of, of failing.
0: Yeah, and you just, and that's the thing is at that time, there wasn't anything foundationally in our economic society that allowed you to turn to the normal means for making stuff work. Right. Right. Of course you did things like cut costs and stuff like that, but, but think about it. Okay. Where's your revenue going to come from short of forecasting your revenue at zero, which you couldn't do because you had this huge infrastructure at this point. Um, there wasn't anything like that. And I, I don't ever want to make the analogy to something as, as dramatic or something as, as tragic as world war II. But you know, there's a famous quote by Winston Churchill when when London's being bombed by the Germans during the war, where he says, "You know, when you're going through hell, just you just keep going." Right. And you literally, you couldn't, you you absolutely were looking for things. But it was very what really helped us. Although I don't know if I realized this at the time, what really helped us is we knew the normal stuff was not going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was literally like making like we all go through society every day, going, you know, I have to drive 55 miles an hour right? A, a car has four tires. We literally, and I said to my, to everyone who's around me, I was like, forget about that. Like, nobody cares if our company survives. They're worrying about whether the Fed's going to survive, right? So right, right. Um, like, just make it up. Whatever we need to do, make it up. And, but there wasn't ever a time where, I mean, there was a couple of years into it when we started to stabilize and grow a little bit again, but that was, you know, three years into it. Right. Um, it was just literally, just go in there and battle every day and understand the people that were, that were, you know, relying on, on me for, for the succeeding.
1: Well, and you've described the couple of years after the crash as being a couple of years of 20 hour days every day. At at what point were you, and I'm sure you never get completely comfortable about this, but at what point were you at least significantly more confident that the business was going to make it?
0: I'd say probably Three years in, mm-hmm. I'd say probably probably this is now probably uh, into 2012. Mm-hmm. So the first you know year or two, it's a little blurry now. But <laughs> the first could it
1: be because you didn't um, sleep?
0: <laughs> uh, believe it or not, believe it or not, I did um, because I I literally said to myself, "How do you perform?" Right, right. How do you perform in this environment? And literally, twenty hours of twenty hours a day was probably an understatement. I mean we li- I was literally working twenty four hours a day, but I was like, you can't do that on no sleep. And so I used to like I said, I used to fall asleep for a half hour right. in my office every day. And I used to sleep eight hours a day, you know, eight hours one day a week. You know, I just you had to try to figure out how to perform. Um, it was probably after two plus years of that. Um and probably, you know, one of the most challenging there was a lot of challenging things during that time, but one of the most challenging things was that you literally had to make decisions, um that should have taken six months in six minutes, Wow, um, because the world was just collapsing around you left and right,
1: right um,
0: and so we just battled every day, and then after about two years or so, we started to see some signs and and obviously we had been tried to right size ourselves in terms of costs, but that's hard when you don't know where your revenue is coming from <laughs> right uh, and then over the course of that you know third year, you know we started to stabilize and grow again a little bit. And that's when you could really feel like it was, uh, you know, it was heading in the right direction.
1: So you ultimately sold your company in 2013. So not all that long after you just described how you felt like you had you had emerged from the worst of this. So after everything you've been through, founding the company, watching it grow. Watching the financial crisis hit and the really very significant impact it had on everything, including your business, what when you decided to sell, how did that make you feel after so many years of investing so much of your heart and soul into the business?
0: Well, I think that that you know, out of the financial crisis, um, you know, we everybody was like everybody's going to do rewards in healthcare. It was an incredibly surreal experience. <laughs> We're like something we had been saying over 10 years ago. So the time was just right. You could just tell that there was going to be an upswing and that everybody was going to do this. And, you know, had we not gone through the financial crisis, you know, there's a pretty good chance that our valuation would have had a B next to it at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But you, but you could just tell that everybody was going to do this and there's going to be a lot of muscle. And, you know, we had been through a lot, you know, small companies, you know, can't, it's really hard for companies that are that to, to go at it again um, but so it just felt right. Like it felt like the right thing to do, even though we were growing and there was a lot more opportunity and upside for us again, but you know what, for a little bit of time, for maybe a two or three months in the beginning, you know, I was looking back on, you know, other offers to buy the company before the crisis. And I had a little bit of that in my head, but once I had turned past that, um, to me, I was incredibly proud of our team. I mean, I was incredibly proud of the people that were in the company that had you know, put their heart and soul into building it, much less saving it. Mm-hmm. And for me at that point, it was all upside. It was all, uh, it was an incredibly life changing experience. Although I don't think I realized it at the time it took incredible efforts, um, and incredible fortitude. Um, I would never liken it to, you know, having a tough time paying the bills or feeding your family or going to war or anything like that. But it certainly felt like that. And so I was just incredibly proud that you start to look at, you know, income statements that show positive things. instead. Of <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so for that point, to me, it was it was all upside and we didn't have any intention to sell the company. It's just that the right opportunity came along. Uh, and when we did, went and did it and, and listen, because my background as an M&A lawyer helped. Right? right. So going into that, you just know that you need to be ready to do it. Uh, You're not going to be able to turn it over to somebody else and have them um, value it, honor it, whatever it is, the same way you do. And so, you know, the time was right. And I was incredibly proud. Let's put it this way. If I was really being honest with you and your audience, we probably had a one in ten shot of making it. Wow. Um, That's pretty risky stuff. Yeah, listen, you just, if you think about, there were there were companies that are multi, multi-billion dollar companies that were collapsing. Nobody cared about a company with a couple hundred employees, right? It was like a big tidal wave that you just happened to be sitting on the beach at the time, right? Right, right. And so for a company of our size, whose customers were all the largest companies in America, right? For us to be able to come out of that um, and to do it in a way where, we still had great value to the company, and we were still recognized as a leader, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, um, you know, some people approached us uh, about selling the company, and it all worked out good. It was something I was incredibly proud of. So, I, to me, at that point, it was easy,
1: <laughs> right?
0: Because the times before had been so, you know, so challenging.
1: So, you're seen by many as the founder of an industry built on providing financial rewards for healthy behavior. How do you feel um, about being recognized that way? I mean, you're seen in this industry as the founder of this particular movement, if you will. How does that feel for you?
0: You know, I, for me, I, it wasn't even so much what it felt for me. I just hope it made the people that worked so hard at this take great pride in what they do. I think there's so many people that go through their day-to-day lives uh, and aren't you know, necessarily fulfilled and maybe don't have the, the hopes or dreams to be, let's say an entrepreneur, but to be a part of that, to be the part of building it and to be a part of, of resurrecting it. you know, I think that the people, and they know who they are, who are the customer service reps and the client service managers and the technology people and the salespeople who all were a part of that, I hope they feel incredible pride about what you just said. For me, it was never about, it was never about being recognized as anything. You know, if you, if you feel like you have a vision and you feel like you execute on that vision, hopefully with clarity and, and, and true belief and passion, then, you know, what they, what they say about later doesn't really matter.
1: So we're winding up our first segment and in our next, in our next segment, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a lonely entrepreneur. But in the meantime, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners and where can they find you?
0: Sure. Um, Listen, I think that even though our challenge was, I think, very unique. Um, you know, these are the things that entrepreneurs deal with every day. You know, they have vision and passion and idea, uh, and at the same time, they see all the uh, all the challenges that come. And what you realize over the course of that, or at least what I realized over the course of that, is that you know it's not enough to have you know passion and grit and a good idea. You actually have to improve your skills as, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, as a leader, you know, I, we were talking before about sleeping, you know, most entrepreneurs would say, I don't have time to sleep. I certainly said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I told you this before we got on the air that I literally fell asleep on my couch in my office by mistake for a half hour, at like whatever, four in the afternoon. And, and I was like, wow, this feels really good. I'm going to do this every day. Mm-hmm. And so you you learn that being an entrepreneur and being a leader, a CEO of a growing company, is actually about improving all these different skills, not about passion. Like I can slam my head into the wall harder than the next guy or gal. Right. Um, it's it, it's how do I actually improve my skills uh, as an entrepreneur? So many 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 lessons, uh, including I should tell your audience if anybody's a bourbon drinker, I'm your guy. <laughs> quite a quite a palate for bourbon along the way. Not recommending that to your audience, of course, but... Um, sure you are. <laughs> yeah. So, and, <laughs> if you're ever in New York City, I'm your guy. Um, so uh, yeah, you can find us at lonelyentrepreneur.com. And the book, of course, uh, which you know we wrote about the whole journey is on Amazon, again, called The Lonely Entrepreneur. And pretty much everywhere on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, if you go to The Lonely Entrepreneur, you'll find us uh, pretty much everywhere.
1: Well, I've really had a lot of fun during the first part of our conversation, and I'm looking forward to the second part.
0: Thank you very much. Me too.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Michael Dermer and that you will join us next week for part two of our chat. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.